If you've got your Bible at hand, let me just uh, take you through Daniel 5 as we look at this amazing chapter uh, together, the writing on the wall. It's one of quite a number of expressions that are common in the human language which have come from the Bible. The writing on the wall, we think of say that, uh, Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer, the writing was on the wall for him. Uh, a comment was made that someone's time is coming to the end. And this is where it comes from, uh, the book of Daniel and the story of Belshazzar. And although Nebuchadnezzar, who we were thinking about last week, is referred at different times in this chapter to Belshazzar's father, uh, it's a term that could be used not just of a father, but a grandfather, a great-grandfather, an ancestor. And it's most likely that Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, or possibly even great-grandson, through Belshazzar's mother's side. So it was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter or granddaughter who indeed was married to him. He's believed to be the son of a king called uh, Nabonidus, and Nabonidus was still living at this time of Belshazzar. He actually outlived his son, uh, but he went and put himself in exile at a time and left the running of the kingdom to his son, and that's why Belshazzar is center stage here. The first thing we see in this story is the proud king is interrupted in verses 1 to 6, and we see this feasting to impress there in verse 1, this grand feast of a thousand people, and it speaks of Belshazzar drinking in front of the thousand. That seems to suggest he was doing something to get attention on himself, and this whole thing seems to be about just getting a good name for himself. And we have to be very careful in life if we're trying to push ourselves up, of pushing ourselves as seeming to be great in the eyes of people around us. We cannot be working to lift ourselves up in people's eyes and be lifting Jesus up at the same time. One of the great marks of God's people is humility. But here we have a king who just wanted to look good and to impress those around him. And then we see defiling what is holy in verses 2 to 4. It speaks in verse 2 about the wine, and it appears to be that indeed the old expression, when the drink is in, the wit is out. And so with wine, the more he took, his reservations appear to go. And he brings these holy articles in from the temple, and the first thing we see is he is joining that which is holy from God with immorality. Because you look in verse 3, it seems to highlight about his wives, plural, and his concubines, all there. So this was a situation of terrible impurity that was going on here. And he thought he could bring that which is holy from God and mix it with an impure lifestyle. But then there was the blaspheming in verse 4, where they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They took the holy things that were to be used for the glory and honor of God alone and used them to worship and to honor false gods. And God is never going to take those things which are meant to be holy and for his honor to be abused. He's never going to take those things lightly. Just when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, Aaron's the priest, his two sons, who offered unauthorized uh, incense to the Lord, an unauthorized offering to the Lord. And they were struck down with fire from the Lord's presence. 
And the Lord says, among those who approach me, I will show myself to be holy. And when people abuse that which is holy, the Lord in his time will indeed act. Because the Lord is a jealous God. He is jealous for the honor of his name because he deserves all the praise and the glory and will not stand by when that which is holy is dishonored. Or we can think we'll be thinking of this in the Bible reading notes this month in 2 Samuel, the story of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. When the Ark of the Covenant, David was wanting to bring it to Jerusalem and it was on the back of a cart, which immediately it was not in the way that was intended for it to be carried. And when it began to shake, Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark. And like that, was struck down dead. It just reminds us that we have a holy God. Yes, we emphasize the grace of God, the love of God in Jesus Christ. But he is a holy God. He is a consuming fire. And we need to be careful and think, what are the holy things of God today that we can defile? We can defile Scripture by abusing it, misusing it, and not studying it in a serious manner. We can abuse the gospel if we present it in a twisted manner. We can abuse the Lord's Supper, taking up the bread and the wine in an unworthy manner. We can abuse the worship of God when it becomes more about us or do the worship of God in a non-biblical way or with a wrong attitude. Or the people of God, they're holy too if we abuse them. We need to be careful that we do not abuse that which is holy to God, that which is dear to God. He will not stand by forever if people will do that. Defiling what is holy. And then we see thirdly writing that terrifies in verses 5 to 6. And the, this writing on the wall, it interrupts all the festivity that's going on, and it really terrifies the king. Look at verse 6. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. In other words, he became a trembling this. This man who was so proud, this man who was so full of himself, now is a man who is falling apart, absolutely terrified at what is happening. And he still isn't aware of the full seriousness of what is happening. So here we see that God interrupts his sinfulness. God interrupts his party. If people want to treat this world as a party, they need to be reminded that the party will not go on forever. God will interrupt it. So there we see the proud king is interrupted. And then secondly, we see that the concerned king is guided in verses 7 to 16. And first of all, in verses 7 to 9, we see that the, the wise men in this situation are helpless. The writing on the wall, as we'll see shortly, it was about a real life or death situation. But when they were asked to explain it, they had no answer. They couldn't understand what the writing was about. And that's a picture of the, the best wisdom that the world has to offer. The world with its best wisdom is full of shortcomings in its ability to answer the biggest questions of life. 
And the sad thing today is that the world without God, it is so proud, it's so boastful about its knowledge and likes to present its so many things as certain, but it doesn't have the answers to the biggest questions of all. Questions like who we are. They're just grappling around in the dark. Where we come from. What is the purpose of life? What happens after life? And all those crucial questions, the world tries to come up with some sort of answers, and they do it with great confidence at times. I think as we were talking to the boys and girls about the Big Bang, and I, I was so thankful for that to spend a bit of time in studying that, because, you know, as a Christian, you, you hear about these things which are supposed to undermine what the Bible teaches but when you study them, you begin to realize just what, just how ropey the, the evidence is for it. But this idea that from one little item that the whole world has a sense come about, this little thing that suddenly has blown up and so forth and expanded. But they have no idea of where it came from, have no idea why it would do that, why it expands. They have just no answer. The most important questions of life, it is God alone who is able to guide. And what we see here in verse 9 is that the king becomes even more terrified by their failure to answer. The king, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Here are people who are hopeless and helpless. They're terrified because they don't have the answers to the most important questions of all. As we think of that's the way the world is, we will see that that is an opportunity for Christians because we do have the answers. Not to every question, but we do have the answer to the most important questions of all. Then the second thing we see here is the queen is inspired in verses 10 to 12. This could be the king's wife. It might actually have been his mother. She knew about Daniel as the king knew about Daniel, and she was not afraid to speak up about him. And her testimony about Daniel, we see there in verse 12, is, is very honoring. She says, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. She had confidence in this man. She had known his track record in the dream of the statue, the dream of the great tree that King Nebuchadnezzar had. She knew about how he was able to guide and direct. He was a man who was able to lead people into God's truth about what was happening in this world. And so she directs the king to him. And as wonderful as Daniel was, though, the wonderful thing is we have an even greater interpreter to turn to. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have his words. We have the living word of God before us. And in that word, all that we need to know about life is contained in it. All the important things to answer those questions about who we are, where we come from, what's the purpose of life, what happens after this life, all those important questions are answered there. 
And the wonderful thing is that once we come to know those answers, once we are people who are confident in the answers that God gives us, we can be those who can be used by God to a world that is just groping around in the dark, able to show them the truth and the light of Christ. Our task is not to be great interpreters ourselves. Our task is to point people to the greatest interpreter of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember years ago visiting a lady who was going through some troubled times. She had been at different counselors and that, and I remember saying to her, you've tried different counselors, but can I tell you of another counselor? A counselor called the Holy Spirit. And if you read God's Word with an open heart, praying that indeed that the Holy Spirit would guide you, He will. He will give you the direction. He will give you the wisdom. He will give you the help that you need. And then we see that the king is seeking in verses 13 to 16. He really wants now to know the answer to what this writing is about. He's hungry for it and he promises Daniel both wealth and the position of being the third ruler in the land if he can share the meaning. And God's people need to, we need to know and show that we have confidence in being able to answer the big questions. And Daniel has this confidence, not in himself, but he's someone who has tried and tested and proved the ability of God in doing this. The wonderful thing is we don't live in a world that is all of chaos and chance. It might look like that at times, but that's not the full story. We live in a world that's under the wise and loving plan of God. We live in a world where God is working out his purposes. And therefore, we can turn to this God and we can find from this God what he is doing and what his plans and purposes are. And we can share it to a world that needs this so badly today. Do you understand that? That if you're in a workplace, you're in a classroom, and you're among people who are sometimes so brash and, and maybe so arrogant in putting down Christianity, I'm sure they have real, real concerns that they hide so often. Real, real fears that torment them about the future, about what happens after death. They don't know a loving father. They don't know a loving shepherd who walks with them. They have deep down questions. And deep down they want answers. And the times when they become vulnerable, like the king here, they'll become more open for answers. Brings us to our final point, which is the condemned king is exposed from verse 17 on. First of all, we have the lesson in humility. Daniel shares the story of Belshazzar's ancestor, King Nebuchadnezzar. This was a story that Belshazzar knew the Bible says here. But this was a story that he had ignored. It's wonderful the way the king is presented there. He lifted people up, he pulled people down. 
He was a king who could almost do anything that he wanted, and nobody could stand in his way. But even that king was brought so low to live with the wild animals until he acknowledged there's a greater king in heaven who needs to be acknowledged and to be honored. And Belshazzar was full of himself. Belshazzar refused that lesson when he was growing up. One of the greatest dangers today is always pride. Pride is the one thing that keeps people away from Jesus, away from salvation. And pride is one of the things that really tears apart so many professing Christians and hinders their witness and their growth. We see the lessons that's not learned. Look what indeed is said in verses 22 to 23. And at this stage, Daniel is a good age of a man. We don't know his age exactly, but he's a good age of a man. Belshazzar, I just noticed the way C.F. put in the picture. Belshazzar was probably quite a young king. His father was still living, so he probably wasn't a very old man at all. And Daniel comes into the presence this Daniel, who has had so much experience of kings and of life, and he's not going to be intimidated by this young pup. And looks the way he puts it here in verse 22. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. What tremendous courage Daniel has before a king who in an instant could have ordered for Daniel to be put to death. But here the king is rebuked for using these holy vessels in such an immoral and blasphemous way. And he's told that the God that he has dishonored is the God who holds his breath, the God who holds his life, the God who holds his future in his hand. In other words, King Belshazzar, you need to be humble. You need to understand that this glorious God is far above you and you need to get down off your high horse. I think of the story of Moses, how he's described as the, the meekest man on the earth. Why was Moses so meek? Why was Moses so humble? It is because he had spent so much time in the presence of the Lord. If we would spend more time in God's presence, we too will become more humble. Then we have the explanation that is delivered in verses 24 to 29, which Victoria has explained many. God has numbered the days your kingdom. Tackle, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom will be divided among the Medes and Persians. And even though this is a tough answer, King Belshazzar, he appreciates Daniel's honesty and appoints him to be the third ruler of the land, which probably wasn't a great uh, honor, saying it's about, everything's about to be ripped apart. But imagine getting an answer like this. Your days are numbered. 
You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And that which you hold dear is going to be ripped apart. How he must have dreaded this. It just reminds us that we have to be careful. We have to be careful because of our last point, which is the judgment that came. The judgment was swift here that very night. The king was killed, and Darius the Mede took over his kingdom. Let's remember this. God is a patient God. But in the end, judgment will come in a flash. We live in days when some people mock the idea of judgment. That's one of the shocking things the days we live in, is that people are so arrogant. People are so quick to even express that they do not care about God's judgment. And they make even trivial remarks about hell and what it'll be like, as if it'd be a place where they'll have a real good time with their mates. But it's not to be like that at all. One of the interesting things is in the times of the New Testament, people mocked the whole idea of judgment as well. And this is the response of Peter in 2 Peter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We need to live our lives always remembering that their day will come when Jesus will return. A day will come when we will have to give an account of the life that we have lived. As Paul says, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. How does that make you think this evening? If you are a Christian, it should cause you to number your days. It should cause you to seek purity and repentance from sin and seek to be faithful to the Lord more and more because you will have to give an account of every word, every action, every thought. But if you're not a Christian, you should be terrified. If you're not saved here tonight, you need to realize that this judgment day could come in a flash. This judgment could come before this day is out. And you will experience the wrath of God for all of eternity. What should be your response to that? The only response that is sensible is to flee not to try and flee away from God, but to flee to Jesus, to come to Him and acknowledge your sin, acknowledge that you have failed Him, acknowledge that you shut Him down, acknowledge that you've been so full of yourself like King Belshazzar, and plead His mercy.
Plead his forgiveness. Plead for his cleansing. You see, there are only two ways that people will appear before Christ on that judgment day. There are those who will appear before Christ with their sin fully exposed, and they'll experience his wrath and hell forever. There'll be others who'll be very different because they'll appear before Christ in the judgment covered with the righteousness of Jesus. Their rags of sin have been taken off as they trusted in Jesus, and they've put on the coat of the perfect life of Jesus. And when they're judged, it's as if they have lived that perfect life. And they'll enter the new heavens and the new earth with joy unspeakable for all of eternity. Now, which is your story? Are you going to appear with your sin fully exposed? Or are you going to appear hiding in the righteousness of Christ? Poor Belshazzar, so full of himself. But he was weighed in the balances and found wanting. And the judgment came. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Father, sometimes in Scripture there are, are words which are so tender, so gentle, and yet there are other times when there's a word that is sharp, it's cutting, but it's equally needed. Oh, Father, expose our sin. Expose where we in our lives have been like King Belshazzar full of ourselves, living for pride, living for pleasure, and blaspheming the living God. Oh, Lord, may we hide in Jesus our only hope in life and death. In his name we pray. Amen.